Hello and welcome to Popscreen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are the Geek Show's podcast who record shows about pop movies, movies either by, starring or about pop stars, a range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction, we cover it all. I'm Graham Williamson, I'm a film critic for thegeekshow.co.uk and Horrified magazine and I've been joined this week by... By uh, Rob Simpson, site editor for The Geek Show, and something which isn't a YouTuber for The Geek Show, but also is because identifying as a YouTuber is is the greatest shame of my life. That is true. If you called yourself a YouTuber, you'd have to respond by becoming incredibly racist and getting cancelled straight afterwards. So it's for the best that you don't do that. It is. It is indeed. Or, you know, do something horrible in a place that has got sacred, you know, meaning. Yeah. If you're, a, like, a, what was he, Aaron Paul, was that the one who did that, or Logan Paul? That was, that was Logan Paul. Aaron Paul's the guy off Breaking Bad who was, whose only crime was appearing in the Need for Speed movie. Well, we've all got our sins, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> we've all got our off days. Allow us, dear listener, to blow your mind with some trivia. Brian De Palma, it turns out, is quite a big fan of Alfred Hitchcock. Specifically, when talking about his love for Vertigo, De Palma said, it's showing us what it's doing as it's doing it. Well, this week's film sees Brian De Palma showing you what he's doing in a way that will still leave you completely baffled as to what the hell he's playing at. It is comfortably the oddest item in his repertoire, a blackly funny proto-Rocky Horror combination of Faust, the Phantom of the Opera and the Portrait of Dorian Gray, that on its initial release flopped everywhere except Winnipeg, and thanks to Guy (laughs) Madden, we know what they're like. It is Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, it's a well. I mean, I dispute the fact saying it's the weirdest thing in his filmography. Oh, um, not too much because it's not exactly the commonly seen thing. Uh, his the career, he was basically a Hitchcock copyist. Let's mm. be perfectly honest. With yeah. a few gangster movies where he flirted with being good, and this is coming from someone who they say about three or four years ago I I identified as a the Palmer fan, but. I turned hard on this guy. <laughs> but, yeah. Ah, interesting, interesting. Because I had the opposite problem. He was the director who had probably made the largest number of films I really like without sort of quite convincing me that I could ever say that I was a fan. And that yeah. might have turned around a bit, but we'll get on to that. I think Dress the Kill was the turnaround where the big spin is, uh, transvestite, scary. <laughs> and uh, what was the other one? It was Raising Cain as well. Uh, transvestite, scary. Who was it who played that in Raising Cain? John Lithgow. John Lithgow, transvestite. Yeah. yeah. Which is supposed to be played for like a scary moment, but it's just so silly. And co- come on, I mean, I know he's played a lot of villains, but you can't persuade me that John Lithgow is anything other than adorable. Oh, yeah, he's he lovely. But the movie I was referring to before all that was uh, Hi Mum. Where ah. y- you would never ever like looking at his later filmography, consider that uh, Brian De Palma came up from the same school as uh, Martin Scorsese. Um, who else was it? It's like a group of them, wasn't it? Like Steven Spielberg, Coppola. Yeah, it's like absolute who's who 
of like the upper echelons of American cinema. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And he's a filth merchant. <laughs> <laughs> but they all were at that early point, weren't they? Even Scorsese, he was making stuff uh, like Roger Corman when he started out. And the big shave is, after all the horrible things I've seen in cinema, that's still kind of one of the most wince-inducing. I absolutely agree. Yeah, that's very squirmy. But I think part of the lesson here is that American cinema functioned the best when it had not just a B-movie industry, but a B-movie industry that was a pipeline to Hollywood. Nowadays, B-movies still exist. There's plenty of straight-to-DVD tat out there, but it's kind of its own mm. walled-off thing. You don't make films for the asylum and then end up helming big Hollywood productions. And there's no sort of transitionary period. It's like you have moderate success on the indie scene and suddenly you got a Marvel movie. Yeah, it's, yeah. You can't sort of like toil away in the indie circuit making weird, weird films. I think the only person who actually makes sort of low to mid-budget films as a career is Wes Anderson, and that's because he is a sentient corduroy jacket who lives in the 1960s. Best explanation of him, but yes. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Um, Phantom of the Paradise came from a moment where De Palma was in an elevator and he heard an arrangement of the day, A Day in the Life by the Beatles that was done for Muzak. You know, it was kind of like easy listening that's just meant to drift around when you're in a lift or something. And he thought how strange it was that less than about six, eight years ago, this was the capstone of the most revolutionary album that had been made up to that point. And now it's just this piece of meaningless background wallpaper music, which sparked an interest in what one of the many things that this film is about, I guess, which is how a song can be reshaped by a manager, how it can be changed by being passed to a different group or even the same group with a different image. Mm. And how he, how that sort of like German idea like, transformed into Phantom in the Paradise, that's kind of a wild transition, really. It is, yeah, because as I made clear in the introduction, this is the kind of film where a central idea has been bolstered by putting bits of classic stories and fables onto it, which is something I always enjoy. It's one of the reasons why I really love Terry Gilliam in that his films have that kind of intertextual level. Every Terry Gilliam film is a bit like Don Quixote, up to and including his version of Don Quixote, I think. <laughs> I, I don't watch his version of Don Quixote because... Uh... I think it might like, implode the multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, there is part that you think, what if this is a trap? I don't know what it'd be a trap for, but it's clearly not a real film. It's the only logical outcome, you know, for this movie. Yes. This is kind of, yeah, Phantom of the Paradise is exactly the same. Uh, should I try a synopsis? I'd be interested to see you take a run at it. I'm not going to lie. Um, there's this guy called Wimslow. He's composing his... Can, is it cantata? Because it's mm. a term that I've only ever heard in this movie. I'll be perfectly honest. It's not a phrase that we're going to use on pop screen very often. Mm. It's essentially a rock opera 
based on the work of Faust. It's his, it's his life's work. Mm. Um, counterpoint to that, meanwhile, as they say in comics, um, oh, what's he called now? <laughs> his name's uh, Paul um, Williams' character. Uh, Swan. He, yes, Swan with blood records. It's all coming back to me now. He's making his new club, the Paradise Club, and he wants some show to show to the world this is who I am. This is what the Paradise Club is. Come and, you know, celebrate me. Me, 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 me. Mm. So he goes, uh, Swan goes through all of these normal sort of um, auditions. He's got like a club at the beginning, which is sort of like a Beach Boys parody. A very, yeah. very weird Beach Boys parody, sort of like a, a club band. But he wants something more. He wants something a bit better. So he puts on an open audition. We get... Winslow, who turns up, and mm. he's absolutely shooed out of the stage. He, he's bum-rushed, but Swan nicks his material. Mm. And then bad stuff happens. I think there's a spell in prison. <laughs> and generally, in his pursuit of making his cantata and putting it in the world stage, Swan does him over. Mm. And it eventually segues into a Phantom and the Paradise arrangement with a little bit of Faust. Yeah, I, I like how your summary of that plot did have the air of someone struggling through an acid flashback, which is completely <laughs> appropriate. Well, yeah, because it, it's about four films in one, let's be yeah. perfectly honest. Like a musical, a Faust movie, a Phantom of the Opera movie, and sort of like an acidy 70s movie. And I think um, one of the things that I love about pop movies is that they are usually unusually vivid like time capsules of when they were made far more than movies about anything else and this is I guess the kind of pre-cool 70s it's like very easy to look back on the 70s now and think oh right straight out of the gates you've got boy you've got abba you've got chic you've got the sex pistols you know all these iconic bands just bang 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 one after the other uh but we forget that there was a lot of the 70s which was very naff and where people didn't really know what the decade was going to be about other than the hangover from the 60s and this is a very good satire on that I think. Yeah when you were saying all that for some reason I started to think of the producers how Phantom of the Paradise has like an air of the stage aspect of the producers. Yeah. That's not a bad thing to have a comparison point with either. Because there's never any sense that Swan was ever in it for the art, is there? He's not one of those people who started off with, you know, a dream and a passion for music and then just got corrupted. He's just a, a parasite. Well, there's little inklings later on that he was once an artist, mm. but he was galled at the fact that he was ageing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It all sort of, it all sort of uh, started from there really. And he's played by Paul Williams, who I think is a, a good sort of character, a good character actor for this kind of backroom Svengali type, because he's very physically unimposing, and he has this odd baby face, so you can kind of believe in him mm. as someone who is both in the shadows and who never ages. And the other thing about Paul Williams is that he pops up everywhere, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. Even before that, he's like one of the great pop composers of cinema. Yeah. He's just incredible at what he does. 
he worked with the Muppets. Uh, yeah. It's his sort of his, his crowning, like the rainbow connection is his sort of, uh, this is who I am job. The one job that will read over and over on the news when someone passes away, that sort mm. of thing. Yeah. But he also, he was in Baby Driver. I rewatched Baby Driver recently. Yeah, he's the bent cop who offers Jamie Foxx the range of guns and grenades. That's going to change that rewatch. Isn't it just? <laughs> I mean, it's already changed enough on a rewatch with one of its main characters, but that's sort of swinging it back in the good way. Yeah, this, this one's going to make it more fun. Mm. Yeah, he was in that. He was in something which I I know nothing about, but I'm m- fascinated by this title. It has such a magnetism. He was in something called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Future episodes, do we think? Uh, yes. <laughs> For the name alone. <laughs> I mean, often have I thought on Christmas morning, you know what, this needs more jug band. It's the reason for the season. The 70s are a hell of a decade, man. (laughs) Yeah, so he he wrote, as a songwriter, he's had a hand in so many artists' careers. As Rob says, he worked with the Muppets. He wrote Fill Your Heart by David Bowie, Rainy Days and Mondays by the Carpenters, Evergreen by Barbara Streisand. So... In a strange way, although he never had the kind of power Swan had, he is very used to being the guy behind the scenes while someone out front does all of the, like, charismatic arena-filling stuff. I mean, I don't know whether there's any sort of dubbing of singers here, but if this is Paul Williams' real song, he had star appeal. He's mm-hmm. got a lovely voice. He's everything about being sort of there. A Carpenters-esque sort of 70s pop icon with a voice like that. Assuming it's his real voice, of course. I think it is. Because I also, think... uh, let me just check. Jessica Fletcher? No, that's not that. Jessica, Jessica Fletcher is the one from Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> well, <laughs> what a casting coup that would be. <laughs> Jessica, oh, what's she called from? Suspiria. She also Je- sings in it. Jessica Harper. Oh, we're way off. But yeah, she also <laughs> sings. And I don't know if that's a real voice, but if, if it was, she's also a hell of a singer too. I've just got it uh, listed up here. It seems like it's Harper's real voice. Garrett Graham, mm. who plays Beef, was dubbed. But Paul oh. Williams, how's this? Not only is that Paul Williams' real voice, but when the Phantom sings, that's Paul Williams singing as well. It's, it's His voice is sort of like a synthesised, weird mess. So yeah, he's very versatile. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, Jessica Harper's in this. I was delighted to see Jessica Harper. And she has that bit at the audition where she just tears it up in the instrumental break. It's it's very far away from Suspiria, <laughs> I think. If she goes full Iggy Pop. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> well, you, you said it there, so I have to bring him up. But if you're going to take away one thing from this movie, it's got to be beef. Beef is amazing. How would we describe um, beef? He, he, sort of an amalgamation of all the sort of stereotypes of hair rock and metal. And yes. Sort of like Wizard and Slade and all the American ones as well. He's just such, he's beefed them all together. 
there is something so weird about beef who is uh, this kind of frankenstein's monster that swan creates to get winslow's music uh, to the masses and he's kind of meant to be the ultimate rock star and it's very strange because just before this like literally less than a year before this david bowie tried the same thing that he'd had very limited success with his earlier albums and when he came up with the concept for Ziggy Stardust, part of what he thought was, well, clearly I'm not a pop star or I'd be a pop star by now. So we'll find someone who can present these songs and who can be Ziggy. And they apparently found this guy who did look a bit like Beef, this like 12 foot tall, muscular blonde guy in some gay club. And they took him back to the recording studio and found that he could not sing at all. It was a fucking disaster. Um, Oh, oh, Bowie, when you were wrong, you were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to be there at that meeting where it's just like, oh, well, time to put the multicolored jumpsuit and the mullet on, guys. We've tried everything else. (laughs) There is a bit of a David Bowie about beef, though. Definitely, yeah. Bit of an Iggy, too. Like the stage charisma, yeah. Yeah. Absolute charisma on stage. It's, It's something which, basically, even if you hate this movie, you can't hate beef because he's just sort of charisma overload completely yeah. on stage as a performer and uh, the character himself you know I mean later in the movie he's absolutely adamant that he won't go on the stage so all he does has some cooking all right I'll, I'll go back on stage I'm fine <laughs> I, don't know, I think we've just power finger on what that meeting David Bowie was at was like now <laughs> yes probably probably <laughs> So it's got this Faustian aspect. It's got the classic scene of the contract signed in blood. Um, but it also, as Rob says, has this Phantom of the Opera quality too, because when uh, Winslow is sort of fixed up by two corrupt cops and sent to prison, he ends up in a, a remarkably prescient piece of satire in a private prison that's run by the Swan Corporation, where he's fitted with metal teeth. What was the reason for that again? They do give a reason, don't they? I think it was something like to to just help prisoners take care of their health. We're going to get rid of all these rotting natural teeth and just give you some easy, clean metal teeth, something like that. It's kind of... uh... Clockwork Orange aspect to that, isn't it? Yeah, the, yeah. The prison bit, especially. I mean, it, how that ends and how he becomes the... Uh, I don't know how much we want to go into spoilers here, but... By all means, he, go into spoilers, by the way, yes. How he becomes the the Phantom is he basically gets crushed in a printing press, mm. which I don't know how they did that, but that can't have been like, an easy stunt to pull off, given what it looks like on screen. It does look like he's literally crushed. I think, I can't remember whether it was in that documentary by, was it Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow who did the documentary, De Palma? Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember whether it was in there or in some behind-the-scenes feature for this film, but that nearly went badly wrong in exactly the way you'd think it would go wrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it's kind of like Jackie Chan esque, isn't it? How yeah. he's nearly died in all of his films by making his stunts a tad too real. <laughs> yes. and, uh, yeah, it happened here too. Yeah, so we should talk a bit about Paul. Uh, is it no uh, William Finley, who plays Winslow Leach, um, because he's a really strange and interesting screen presence, and I, I was. When I saw this, I was desperate to find out where De Palma had found this guy. And it turned out they went to university together, didn't they? Um, I think he was in one of... I know the guy who played Beef was in one of the early trilogy. Mm. Uh, I think he was in uh, Greetings. or The names escape me, but yeah, he was in one of those early movies. Uh, Winslow Leach. He was in one of those early mm. uh, De Niro collaborations. And he's also in Sisters, I think. Uh, the other um, De Palma movie with, or, and it, Superman's wife. Oh, <laughs> uh, Margot Kidder. Yeah, with Margot Kidder. Yeah. Which is a remarkable film, but he's such. You always remember him because there's nobody else really like him. Mm, yeah. And any sort of aspect of his presence, what he looks like, how he delivers, you know, anything. And he's one of those people who is so unlike a standard movie star that it goes right round and he ends up being really charismatic and interesting because he's so different. It's the uh, Willem Dafoe method, isn't it? Definitely, yes, yeah. <laughs> it works for a lot of people. The cast is largely great, though, I mean... Mm. Uh, how I mean how do you even get a thing like this made like how would you cast a thing like this and it it's such a finely balanced thing because get one bit wrong and it's an absolute car crash of a mess this thing yeah but the casting there's no real stars not really besides Paul Williams and his music career but they carry it so well despite that yeah, and I mean, nothing says this is 70s Hollywood more than this idea that De Palma had met William Finley when he was a film student. He'd made two or three abstract avant-garde political features with him and then just sort of gone to a film studio and said, I've got this incredibly ambitious project. It's going to require a lot of massive sets and a lot of big musical production numbers. Uh, but don't worry, you know, we've got some insurance because the star is going to be this guy I met at uni. <laughs> what? It's the absolute opposite <laughs> of Hollywood logic. Yeah. I mean, they always say that, don't they? Says they couldn't make a film like this now. Says, what are you talking about? They can never <laughs> make films like this. <laughs> oh, man, it really drives me up the wall when people say that about Blazing Saddles. And you think, uh, yes, audiences now have uh, had it too easy with the safe PC westerns of um, Quentin Tarantino. Am I reading this right? <laughs> He'd never dream of using yeah. the N-word in a film. Oh, yeah, he's done that a few times, hasn't he? <laughs> I kind of yeah. feel like that's the reason why he's got such a bad rap as well. That's 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 literally it. It's yeah, he, he makes it occasionally pretty damn hard to defend him, and I often want to defend him. Yeah, but this is 
within De Palma's filmography, I think this has probably got the biggest sort of cult legacy behind it. I think so, yeah, because if if you're talking about cult film, presumably you're talking about something that has a big following, but the mainstream sort of don't even know it exists. And you can't say that about something like Carrie or Scarface, because those have devoted followings and everyone in their aunt knows about them. This is a real buried gem, I think. Yeah, it's nice that it's sort of been rediscovered as well. Um mm. I think a big a big part of that though, especially with a musical, I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna make any bones about the fact that I don't like musicals. And that's mainly because the music that's featured in them just doesn't really do anything for me. Yeah. But here, the music is it, yeah, it's it's wonderful. Yeah, it bangs, doesn't it? There is I I forget which song it is, but there is a clip floating around online of Paul Williams performing one of the songs from this on what was it it was it was a thing called the Brady Bunch Variety Hour which is like (laughs) it's good already I know after the Brady Bunch had kind of ran itself into the ground as a sitcom they decided to retool it as a variety show where all the actors would introduce acts as members of the Brady Bunch and one of them is yeah Paul Williams this weird looking little guy doing a part of a rock opera about Faust on this absolutely dismal light entertainment show yeah, I've got a quote here from Paul Williams. It's got it's a bit long, so you have to bear with me. I think it might have been from an interview, but it yeah. was recently uh, up on Twitter. But he said, uh, I did things in my 30s that were ignored by the world that could have been quickly labelled a failure. Here's a classic example. In 1974, I did a movie called Phantom of the Paradise. Phantom of the Paradise, which is a huge flop in this country, there were only two cities in the world where it had any real success, Winnipeg in Canada and Paris, France. So, okay, let's write it off as a failure. Maybe you could do that. But all of a sudden, I'm in Mexico and a 16-year-old boy comes at me, comes at me with a concept of an album, a Phantom of the Paradise soundtrack, and asks me to sign it. I sign it. Uh, it is long, like I said. It's okay. Evidently, I was nice to him and we had a nice little conversation. I don't remember the moment. I remember signing the album. I don't know if I think I remember or I actually remember but the list this little 14 or 16 whatever old this guy was well I know who this guy was well well I know who the guy is now because I'm writing a musical based on Pan's Labyrinth it's Guillermo del Toro (laughs) the work I've done with Daft Punk is totally related to them seeing Phantom of the Paradise 20 times and decided they're going to reach out to this 70-year-old songwriter to get involved in an album called Random Access Memories. So what is the lesson in that? The lesson for me is very be very careful about what you label a failure in your life. Be careful about throwing something in the round file as garbage because you can find it in all the headways of a relationship that you can't even begin imagine is coming in your future. That is lovely, and I hadn't thought about it, but yes, of course Daft Punk reached out to Paul Williams because of Phantom of the Paradise. Of course they like the movie about the pop star with the metal mask and the silly robot voice. Why would they not? <laughs> it's just a little, it was kind of weird serendipity. I knew we were recording this, and it just popped up on Twitter. I was like, oh, that's perfect. Yeah, it absolutely. To, it, has to, it has to be here. Yeah, and and I think it's... 
it, it's such a Del Toro movie as well because it, it uses these intertexts in a way that draws something out of them that you wouldn't have seen before. It's like we've all seen adaptations of Phantom of the Opera. You've probably seen an adaptation of Faust or Dorian Gray, but for some reason, mashing them up produces something that is appreciably different and makes you look at them in a different light. I think it works because of how godly camp it is. I think if it was approached sort of um, pretty much straight-laced, yes. it'd be a disaster. Yeah, I completely agree. Camp kind of papers over a lot of cracks of a lot of things. It's it's a weird thing to openly admit, but I'm happy admitting it. It's a weird register for De Palma as well, isn't it? Because before I'd seen this, I would not have labelled anything he's done really camp or even particularly comic in its sensibility there's a little bit of comic in high mom but camp mm. no not really i mean if you've been really generous mm. you could call something like uh oh names here we go no what's it called the one about uh body double there we go Body Double. Oh. I got there eventually. Right. Something like Body Double is probably the closest you could get if you're being generous to calling something the Palmer Camp. I th- yeah, I guess, because it's got the Frankie Goes to Hollywood cameo and it's one of those sort of 80s things which is so like upwardly mobile and aggressively heterosexual that part of you thinks, did John Waters make this? It's kind of gone out the other end, really. <laughs> It's got a killer who murders women with a hugely phallic drill. <laughs> it's it's not, not subtle. Camp, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's camp if I am. <laughs> yeah, I think I mentioned earlier on that I kind of turned around on De Palma a bit. I'm still not sure if I'd call myself a fan, but I, I find him more interesting than I used to, in part because of that documentary, the uh, No Bound Back Jake Paltrow documentary that I mentioned earlier, yeah. which I think is really interesting. He really lays himself bare on that. I've not really seen a director be so open to yeah. self-criticism like that. Yeah, and I think it, it made parts of his worldview a bit more clear to me because, I mean... We started off the show with it. You can't talk about De Palma without talking about the fact that he, he's a bit of a Hitchcock fan, you guys. He quite likes that Hitchcock fella. And I'd I'd never quite understood why he was so obsessive about it. But the way that he talks about it in the film De Palma, it's like he doesn't just think Hitchcock is good. Everyone thinks Hitchcock is good. But he sees that as a, a style of filmmaking that someone has to carry the torch on and no one else is doing it. So he sees himself as that guy. I can understand that a little bit, but I mean, there's always this thing about why would you be the next, this guy, when you can be the first of you? Yeah. But I, with I, directors as iconic as Hitchcock, I think, yeah, somebody, he is kind of, does have a point there. Somebody has to carry on that tradition. Yeah. 
I think uh, I'm the same as you when I think about artists who were referential, who I really love. I think of people like Del Toro and Tarantino and Peter Strickland, who really sort of pick and mix their inspirations. And I, but I'd never really thought about inspiration in that way before as being a sort of thing you have to almost take on as as heritage you know you have to be the next generation I'd never that would never have occurred to me and it did make me appreciate some of his sort of Hitchcockian thrillers a bit more when he said it Mm. he's he is underrated but he's also divisive for all the right reasons um Mm. he fits in that sort of uh class of directors like Dario Argento who had this rap which followed him for the entirety of the career that they were misogynists mm. yeah and, and I, he, I think if you study his filmography he's not, not i think when there were some bits of the documentary to palmer when he was saying you know oh, oh uh, dress to kill was labeled misogynist and you know i don't i think that's completely settled it isn't and i thought is it i think you can make that charge about individual films but i don't think the whole of his career can be filed away that easily and indeed when he has to deal with something like uh the casualties of war for example are redacted i don't think there's anything leery about how he films violence against women in that context it's kind of like uh, the way I picture this is uh, with Ken Russell and the Devils. Mm. That movie, all of the people who hate that movie, and there's many powerful people in studios who hate that thing. Yeah. To the point where it's not being released. It's probably not going to be released. And the uncut version, I think there's about seven separate uncut versions, each of them uncut in a slightly different way. Each of them less <laughs> cut than the last. Like the ultimate director's cut doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> but that was a movie about blasphemy, but it was constantly called blasphemous. It's not. Mm. It was Ken Russell's talking about blasphemy. And I think uh, the Palmer, in a lot of cases, not all of them, because I do think Dress the Kill and and uh, Raising Cain in the way it sort of talks about transvestites is a bit... Yeah. Do that to Palmer. That's Hasn't aged well. Local, but... Yeah. Beyond that, though, I think he, he's he's okay. He's okay. I think what one of the things that unites De Palma and Russell is that they have such a strong style that unifies so much of their work that it makes it hard for people to tell when they're being serious because the serious films still look and move and feel like the popcorn-y ones. Yeah, and some of the movies Ken Russell's done, if you took him seriously on any level, I mean... There is that. There is that. He was having fun. Yeah. I mean, I guess you wouldn't think the Palmer would, but, you know, maybe he got it all out in Phantom of the Paradise because, you know, this is a special and fun movie. And it does that thing, too, which uh, I said I didn't previously think De Palma could do, where he manages to mash up his influences in a way that's fun. Like, even the Hitchcock reference here is an absurd kind of all-male parody of the shower scene in Psycho. It's much less piously reverential towards Hitchcock than a lot of his movies are. Yeah, uh, it's just... 
a great time, really. Yeah, I, I absolutely a, loved had it. Had time, so, sort of like wrangling with it because, uh, yeah, first time I saw it, I didn't really know what to do with it. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's not an easily digested thing, to be perfectly fair. Yeah. But I think it's just one of those uh, movies where you just have to let it wash over you. Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe there is an element where De Palma's other work is so tonally different from this that there's there's a part of you that looks at it and thinks, no, it, it must be someone else who's pushing it in this direction. Maybe it feels like this because of Paul Williams's work, I don't know, but no, it, it is De Palma, it's just a side of De Palma that he doesn't show, and I, for one, wish that he could find one last opportunity to show this. Going back to that uh, documentary, I don't think he has the desire, really, because he makes a comment in there where he says the director's best work is between the ages of 30 and 50. I mean, for one, Martin Scorsese has something to say about that. Yeah, I so don't agree (laughs) with that, but anyway. I mean, it shows his sort of desire to make more stuff. It's probably past him now. Maybe, yeah. I mean, he's had some bad experiences on some of his recent films with them being recut against his will. And I, I think there seemed to be a time where he thought he could outrun that by going to Europe and becoming a European director. But there's dumb producers in Europe too, unfortunately. <laughs> it's a weird thing for that generation, though, because look at George Romero. He suffered the same sort yeah. of studio, let's just call it what it is, studio stupidity throughout the entirety of his career. Mm. I mean, he, he had great success with Dawn of the Dead, so it was always, do another Dawn of the Dead, that was good. That made money. Did yeah, that? absolutely. Like that. Yeah. And it, he never escaped it. So maybe there's that with uh, De Palma too. I don't know. I think part of it is that, again, to go back to Russell, someone like Ken Russell had a fine reaction to becoming unbankable, which is that he thought, well, I started out making amateur movies with my friends. I'll go back to making amateur movies with my friends, which is fair enough. But when you've been in the position that that 70s American generation of directors have, where you've been able to command Hollywood budgets for things that are basically weird private jokes made by you and your friends you can't go back can you you've got to be no, a quote-unquote no. proper filmmaker yeah it's a shame really i mean it's it's a magical unicorn of a movie mm, which absolutely. i don't think could ever be replicated but that being said it could make an interesting stage show oh that's a good point actually yes and Williams did say he was working on the musical version of Pan's Labyrinth, so I bet he'd be up for it. I mean, a Pan's Labyrinth, a musical? That's a bit of a weird stretch. I guess it does have one character who's <laughs> always making jazz hands. <laughs> yeah. But it's not what you go with that, is it? Pan's Labyrinth of all of his movies. Wow. That's, that's a reach. <laughs> then again, they do have, like, Spider-Man's... Is this a gag or is this actually real? Was the Spider-Man musical? Have I just sort of fever dreamed that? No, that actually happened. And it was like the most expensive thing ever staged on Broadway. And they just injured countless actors doing the stunts. <laughs> and it was Evil Dead musical as well. It's just the stuff they've pulled out. It's just... <laughs> so Phantom of the Paradise, it absolutely, it already is in a, a, a musical. Just just do it. Yeah. Do it, someone. Well, I've got a bit of a quiz here for you, Rob. Oh, uh, no. 
I have <laughs> dug up so much trivia on Phantom of the Paradise because I, I, as I think you can appreciate watching this, uh, ev- every single bit of it is fascinating and every bit of it has some sort of connection to something else. Um, but one thing that particularly fascinated me is that in order to keep the budget down, De Palma did not secure some particular type of insurance that most films have before making the film, uh, which meant that uh, it was specifically against a protection against copyright lawsuits, I think, which meant that when it was released, it was like sharks in the water. Everyone who thought they might be able to make a bit of money off this uh, sued him. So I'm going to read you four entities, if you will. One of them did not sue Brian De Palma over Phantom of the Paradise, and the other three did. See if you can find out the one who restrained themselves. Okay. Universal Studios, the estate of Gaston LaRue, the copyright holders of the comic strip The Phantom, and Led Zeppelin. Oh, well, the Phantom comic, they're, they're dead. Mm. Yep, correct. Led Zeppelin over there. Hmm. That's a bit of a mystery. The estate of fan, uh, Who was it, LaRue, sorry, the name? Gaston LaRue. Gaston LaRue. Who was hmm. the author of the original novel, The Phantom of the Opera. Hmm. I'm going to go with him. Oh, Completely. That Yep, absolutely correct. The estate of Gaston LaRue, who would probably have a better case to sue this film than anyone else I've mentioned, uh, did not sue him. Universal Studios sued because they still owned the rights to make film versions of The Phantom of the Opera from back in the Lon Chaney days. Uh, the Phantom comic strip was just, it's got Phantom in the title. Um hmm. Led Zeppelin, though, is an interesting one. That did affect the film because they had just started a record label called Swan Song Records. And in the original script, Swan's record label was called Swan Song Records, which is why there is that really weird bit where Swan is unveiling beef before the press at an airport. And he has the name of Death Records like superimposed really badly over the podium he's standing in front of. And that's because it did originally say Swan Song and they had to hastily change that after they'd filmed it. I think Def Records works out quite well for it, though. It plays into sort of the incredibly melodramatic tone of this whole thing. Completely agree. I like how very, very on the nose that is. It reminds me of... uh, I remember back in the 90s when everyone was ironic about everything. Someone tried to market a brand of cigarettes that were just called Death. Oh, the 90s. It, what was it? I think it was um, a movie called Detention, a uh, Joseph Kahn movie that said the 90s and the new 80s, you know, as in the, the generation to sort of bust after as a nostalgic thing. Yeah. And before that gets started, can, can two children of the 90s just say, no, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Behave. <laughs> it's not worth it. See, I, I would quite like 90s nostalgia if it resembled the decade I actually remember, which was a really 
weird paranoid time. My abiding memory of the 90s was that the Observer magazine did a goddamn pull-out feature about mystery big cats in the British countryside. Bring that <laughs> 90s back. Yeah. That, that I can, you know, I'll go with that completely. <laughs> <laughs> well... Uh, yes, that that's the end of this week's episode of Pop Screen. It's been a, a bit of a journey to your ears. We had to re-record this one because Scooter Braun holds the copyright to the original Masters. So, um... of course, he does. of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, but until next week, that's been a lot from us. Uh, we'll be back with more pop movie madness next week. But until then, I've been Graham, and I've been Rob, and this has been Pop Screen. See you later. 